1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Niger. Glad to have you all with us for today's show. Of course, you can watch us on Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB news page. Tweet us at PoliticsGPB. And I don't say it often enough, but, you know, if you can't be with us when we're actually on the radio, you can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I know... Because I hear from many of you a day or two after a given show that uh, there are a lot of you out there who do listen to the show that way, and we're glad you do. Uh, with us today in the studio, Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. He has not yet taken any time off since the election, have you? I got Friday off. Oh, well, that's exciting. This coming Friday.
2: Oh, I got last Friday off after Thanksgiving.
1: All right, Bluestein. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> Greg Bluestein, of course. Is focus to some extent on <laughs> politics, but his main focus right now is what happens between the University of Georgia and Alabama in the SEC championship game on Saturday night.
2: I will be there on the field running for our photographers. Our hardworking photographers need someone to carry their, their photo cards back and forth to an editor waiting oh, in the bowels of the
1: state. what a so. great scam oh, for really? going to that game. <laughs> Loretta Lapore, who is a Republican strategist and who was uh, Governor Sonny Perdue, uh press secretary during his tenure as governor of Georgia is with us. Hi, Loretta. Good Hi. to see you.
0: Good to be here. Thank you. N-
1: right next to you, Patricia Murphy. Patricia Murphy now is writing columns for Daily Beast, Roll Call, but has a long history. Oh, and you're also writing for Garden and Gun. You're a very fancy person.
3: I am very fancy. Please remember.
1: (laughs) Uh, You have a piece in Roll Call that we're going to get to in a little while that was really, really fun. It's about Nancy Pelosi, and we'll talk about it uh, in a few minutes. Thank you. I could
3: talk about her for hours. Uh,
1: (laughs) And of course, Patricia is a veteran of uh, the Senate. She worked in a number of uh, senators' offices on the Hill for uh, uh, quite a while. Buddy Darden is also here, the former Democratic congressman from what was the 7th district up there in Cobb County. How are you, buddy? Just thankful to be alive. Buddy, uh, (laughs) tell our listeners, you don't have to give an age, but you did just celebrate a big birthday, didn't you?
4: I just celebrated
1: my 75th birthday on Thanksgiving Day. Wow. All right. Well, we're thankful you're with us on the show today, buddy. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, Greg, let's get right to it. We have a, an election underway. Early voting started on Monday for uh, two runoffs that we're most interested in for secretary of state between Brad Rasm- Raffensperger, the Republican uh, in that contest. <laughs> Buddy Darden showing us that he just has, he has his oh, yeah. I have voted sticker on and um, And John Barrow, the Democrat in that contest, we also have a P.S.C. race. You've been looking; we've been looking at the early voting patterns right now on Georgia Votes, the great web web, website that Ryan Anderson. Uh,
2: Credit all credit goes to him because he's done a terrific job in. Uh, breaking down all these numbers. But if you're Democrats, you're not liking these early numbers. Only about 120,000 people have voted so far. And again, it's really hard to read too much into them. But what we know so far is about three quarters of the electorate are white. More than half of them are over 65. Those are two metrics that Democrats don't want to see. They want to see a more diverse electorate and a younger electorate um, than that. And again, Republicans have long dominated these, these general election runoffs in Georgia. There haven't been any of them. But Republicans have, have swept. Um, the,
1: why, why do Republicans tend to dominate runoffs?
2: Well, older and whiter voters tend to vote in these elections, and that tends to favor Republicans. And the last big one we had was 2008 in the US Senate race, um, where Saxby Chambliss just trounced Jim Martin by a giant margin. It was, uh, I think he got 57% of the vote when it was all said and done. Um, and that got a lot of national attention. These races are not getting uh, a lot of national attention, despite all the voting rights issues we've had, despite all the debate in the gubernatorial race, um, it's been a challenge for um, any of the candidates for Secretary of State to get a lot of um, attention and energy. And that, that really helps Brad Raffensperger because all he needs to do is get the core of voters who were already going to come out. John Barrow, if you're Democrat, John Barrow, you, you, you need to kind of change the electorate in a way that, that Stacey Abrams tried to change the just electorate. Just to be
1: uh, somewhat specific, uh, the uh, early vote so far is 116,753. That's as of the end of yesterday. So that's two days worth of voting. It, It's—Ryan Anderson on his website compares it to the uh, final week of early voting just a few weeks ago— which, you know, was at three hundred seventeen and a half thousand. So, I mean, that's not a very you, you, there was so much excitement about that race that the comparison, it's good to see it, but it, it isn't as meaningful, perhaps. Well, um, Laura, how do you get people to turn out uh, in an election like this?
0: Well, that that's the tough thing. And they're not they're not the top Statewide offices, right? So, if this were a gubernatorial race, it would be a different game, and you'd have a lot more money um, going into these campaigns, and there would be a a much greater effort. Um, In this situation, you know, a PSC race, most folks aren't going to turn out necessarily because most folks don't really even grasp what the PSC does. Um, And then in the Secretary of State's race, you know, Stacey Abrams did a lot with the ground game to turn out voters who didn't previously vote. We had somewhat more than two million more voters in this Mm -hmm. cycle than in any previous midterm election in Georgia. Um, And so, you know, it is Republicans are steadfast and loyal when it comes to getting out for those those runoff races.
1: Yeah. Um, Patricia, you you have to raffensberger did not come to the debate uh, that uh, the uh, Atlanta Press Club staged just yesterday. He, uh, he, they, they're, they said they didn't get the invitation in a timely enough manner. There seems to be some question as to whether that's true. You can't help but wonder if they have a certain level of confidence about winning this race that they felt they didn't need uh, to be in a debate.
3: Yes. Well, I think blaming it on the intern is the safest yeah. excuse in the book you're That's ever going The invitation yes. went to an
1: intern who didn't pass it on to the campaign Otherwise, staff. Otherwise, would have loved
3: to come talk about voter suppression. <laughs> um, so, no, I think that that was, I mean, uh, you know, let's take him at his word. The interns aren't the most reliable kids in class sometimes. Um, but if you are in a general election runoff, you would really rather be a Republican in this state than a Democrat. Um, the inf- This is when the Republican infrastructure... Structure really matters here. I mean, Republicans sort of analogies, I feel like they have kind of all the roads, bridges and airports and the Democrats infrastructure is sort of like, you know, gravel roads that they just sort of repave when it's time to have an election. The Republicans turn out warm bodies for these elections and Democrats, sometimes it's just blood relatives and paid staff.
1: <laughs>
4: but <Buddy. laughs> no doubt he chickened out. Why would you go up there and take a chance on saying stupid and talk about something that you don't know anything about, which is the Secretary of State's office, against a, 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 far, more, a far more polished and, and far more knowledgeable guy. So he did the right thing by ducking the debate because he would have been embarrassed as a result of it. So he did the right thing. What he needs to do is just stay away from everything and uh, kind of cruise to victory on uh, the Republican turnout.
2: And that's not the only uh, sign we have that Raffensperger is not worried. I mean, he doing a special session. Uh, where he's a sitting lawmaker and he can't raise money during a uh, week-long special session, Brad Raffensburg had the opportunity to resign so he could go raise money. He didn't. He stayed in session, um, which to me was the biggest signal that he, he wasn't too worried about Barrow's challenge. And one problem for Barrow, y- yesterday's 1130 debate where he had the podium to himself was maybe the biggest, one of the bigger moments of, of a very shortened, very lower profile um, uh, uh, runoff cycle. What happened at the exact same time as his 11:30 debate, Stacey Abrams announced her cam- her campaign announced its Fair Fight Georgia lawsuit. So he continues uh, to to suffer from uh, sort of an attention lapse because a lot of the attention is still going um, to Abrams.
3: But you have to kind of. Uh- say out loud, what in the world are you doing, Stacey Abrams, If you, which of course she does care about, uh, counting votes in Georgia, the best opportunity Democrats have in this state is to win that Secretary of State's race. If she were out there campaigning for him, I think that would be the world of difference for his campaign. He's getting no oxygen at all because she's still sucking up a lot of the oxygen. Um, Patricia
4: is saying exactly what I was trying to say before she came in, because that's exactly correct. There's an opportunity here. If Stacey Abrams really wants to make an impact, she could get out there, campaign hard, and do everything she could uh, for the Democrats. She would endear herself to all the Democrats, and she actually might make a difference here. These lawsuits are fine, but they'll be years before any of these things happen. And as a result of the lawsuits, they'll probably send it back to the legislature to make a decision anyway. So she has an opportunity here to get out and do something for the Democrats that would have a national impact and would enhance
1: her standing. You know, it's interesting, Loretta, because that was one of the concerns that was expressed in the many days after the election that the Abrams campaign continued to contest the results You know, certainly they had a right to look for every vote they felt needed to be counted. No one would, uh, I don't think, be overly critical for that. But in that process... They completely undermined any effort that either candidate in the secretary of states or the PSE race had to command the spotlight. Uh, and in Barrow's case, especially, they didn't turn their machinery over to get the vote out for him during that period either.
0: Right. And, and the party itself, the Democratic Party itself, was still behind involved in the governor's w- yeah, race. Right. Still involved with Stacey Abrams. And so, um, you know, the other very practical matter was um, the the indefinite nature of the governor's race was making it difficult to get the ballots out. Right. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. um, and, and there's only one week of early voting in, in this runoff, not three like in the general and sa- and no Saturday voting. So there's really there's a l- really little runway for the Democrats um, to be successful.
2: And we kind of hit out of this, but what camp ignored is the ideological divide between these two, between Abrams and Barrow. Abrams is on the vanguard of the progressive movement in Georgia, and Barrow is as centrist as a Democrat as we've seen in Georgia, who uh, uh, opposed Nancy Pelosi, who voted for gun rights expansions. None of these issues have any bearing on the Secretary of State's race, but it does represent that, that, that divide that still sort of haunts Democrats in Georgia.
4: But Barrow could affect the election process 10 times Times more as a secretary of state that all of these lawsuits combined that she's filing because, again, the lawsuits won't change the Georgia law. The Georgia law has got to be changed by the legislature itself. And the only thing the federal courts can and will do, in my opinion, is send it back to the legislature for further action.
1: All right. Well, we're uh, going to watch how that race unfolds. Of course, Election Day is next Tuesday, December 4th. And we'll watch also the early voting numbers in the next couple of days and keep you informed when we come back on the air on Friday's show and see how that all, all turns out. Um, we've already talked just briefly. Buddy mentioned the, there's lawsuits pending over the uh, election and how it was carried out. Um, Greg and you mentioned that it was just yesterday that the abrams forces held their news conference in which they announced that they had in fact filed a federal lawsuit which abrams herself had announced would happen on the day that she said yes uh, i'm not going to be the next mm-hmm. governor i won't concede we are filing federal lawsuit challenging the mechanism the processes the laws that control the election in Georgia—that's a big gulp. <laughs>
2: it's a lot, uh, and she and she lays out multiple points. It's a 66-page lawsuit with a dozen lawyers, and many of them are veterans of of, of high-profile voting rights cases, including Bush v. Gore in 2000. Um, and but one of the things she's looking for is structural changes uh, to to the way votes are conducted in Georgia. These are many of these are issues that Brian Kemp said throughout the campaign were locally run issues by county elections officials, and he, and, and they are locally run issues. But she wants state standards um, for how exact match law works, for how absentee ballots are counted, for some of these issues uh, that continue to dog um, uh, county elections officials and, and the state throughout this whole campaign.
1: Well, but as a pretty
4: good lawyer who's been around a long, long time, I will tell you that the federal courts will be respectful of the state law. And they will send it back to the legislature with certain standards, perhaps. But at least they're not going to change Georgia's total method of voting. They're going to improve it around the edges and uh, get rid of some of the uh, problems uh, connected with exercise of voting rights. But in in the Georgia law will end up being, according to the United States Constitution, the uh, final determinant.
1: Patricia, it was, it seems to me self-evident and yet somewhat significant that the Abrams folks in their news conference yesterday uh, said, first and foremost, we know Brian Kemp is going to be the next governor of Georgia. They made it clear they separated that from the matter that they think is more important, which is to examine the processes by which elections here play out.
3: Yeah, they have got to elevate this conversation out of a political dogfight and a partisan grudge match and get it up over uh, kind of that mud pit and and make the case that this is for the state of Georgia for the good of everyone here. And I do think. Just the way that the election played out and even that there were um, there were different federal responses to the lawsuits that were filed in different counties, it just became such a circus in some ways that I think it does argue for the need for this to be reviewed um, at a higher level. And I th- I would think that there would be an audience for that at the federal courts. There's no way to look at the way that the la- last election was um, both run and then the way the problems were resolved in a way that wasn't really satisfactory to either side. I think that uh, at least people who live here in the state even can agree that there does need to be review. Yeah, this.
1: And, you know, Loretta, th- this is a moment where you, you listen to what the way in which Patricia framed that, that you could imagine an opportunity, whether it's taken or not for a bipartisan approach to, to examining the processes in Georgia. I, I, especially if Brian Kemp's people can be convinced that this isn't simply an attack on him. It has been up until now, but it seems that both sides have an opportunity to try to do what Patricia said, which is to say, are there aspects of how we run elections that deserve attention so the integrity of the system is trusted once again?
0: Well, I think that's right. And I think there were some efforts prior to the election that were moving forward in that regard. So, um, you know, as Buddy says, Two of the bills mentioned, two of the laws mentioned in this lawsuit um, are state laws that the Secretary of State has to abide by, use it or lose it, and the exact match laws. Those are the primary core components of this of this lawsuit. Um, another issue that she raises in the lawsuit is around the integrity of the voting machines themselves. And that's where there was already an effort underway by the Secretary of State Brian Kemp um, pulling together a commission of local officials, cyber sec, you know, cybersecurity experts, um, you know, a whole group of individuals to come up with a recommendation for the next legislative session because this the legislature has to change the law to define what types of machines are, 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 and, and we are they able to use. they have to fund
1: the new machines, the cost of the new machines.
0: Right. And so um, so that was already underway. And that is a bipartisan effort. That That commission is bipartisan. And that recommendation, if if Robin Crittenden, who is the interim secretary of state, m- continues forward with that and that recommendation comes out, that will serve as a basis by which then lawmakers on both sides of the aisle can begin that debate. We,
1: we should say, by the way, that, um, Greg— the the news conference yesterday, there was certainly harsh language about camp use by Lauren Growag or his her former campaign sec, uh, a chair, mm-hmm. uh, a director and now running this new organization. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to continue in that direction if they want to get anywhere with this, it seems to me.
2: No, and in, in an interview with, with Abrams, um, sta- with Stacey Abrams just a few weeks ago, she said she earnestly believes that Brian Kemp has an opportunity here to move past uh-huh. this, and that this could be his sort of, I don't know if, it's, if this is the right parallel, but this sort of Nixon-China moment. This is an area where Brian Kemp knows knows more about voting rights than, and, and ballot issues than voting issues than pretty much anyone else in the state. And uh, as, as the head chief elections officer in Georgia for most of the last decade, and in, in sit down with him last week, he did not close the door on that. Everyone knew that we were moving, that Georgia, there was a consensus in Georgia towards some sort of paper verification system next year that that was going to be the, the biggest issue on the table. But now he's left the door open um, to, to, to bigger changes. And we don't know what those will be yet, but they but, they couldn't embrace some of these.
4: But he considers this a personal affront that uh, he's being attacked. And as a beneficiary of all of this and the person who's mismanaged the situation for the last 10 years, and so this is not the way you uh, bring about change, positive change, when you're criticizing the guy who used to be in charge of it. (laughs) Who's going to make the big decisions about where we go from here?
3: Well, I think it would be very helpful for Stacey Abrams to broaden her coalition a little bit so that this does not look like a rematch from the governor's race, and so it doesn't, frankly, look like a vanity project on her part, Uh, just a way to keep her name kind of at the forefront of this conversation. So if she could broaden her coalition it's going to be essential to have the governor elect within that uh, group because typically it's federal funds and federal grants. Yeah, I should have that made that pay clear. For this. Right,
1: the, there's mm-hmm. a it, there's a proportional That's, share. Is it? Am I wrong? Doesn't the don't the feds contribute yes. to a portion and the state pays for the rest of it? They am I right about? It? Okay. Have,
3: I think when Georgia did it the last time around, it was federal funds for the machines and state funds for the training. Okay. Or vice versa, but okay. it was a large share from both, and so you need both Congress, both houses of Congress and the White House in on that.
2: And from, and from Kemp's standpoint, back to the voting rights legislation issues, um, he's not saying he, – he's being very careful. He's not saying Democratic criticism. He's talking about county election officials who raised what he calls legitimate concerns about, about some of these. So that's the way he might frame it. He might – he's going to try to say if he does – if he goes this route, he's not going to try to say is he's bending to any Democratic criticism. He's saying he's responding to county election officials who are bringing this up. So it will be interesting to see how he parses that if he goes that route.
1: All right. Uh, you have breaking news for us, Greg Bluste. And and I'm thrilled that you're going to be able to report it on our show because it confirms something that those of us who have been part mm-hmm. of the show for a long time have said over and over again. What have you got for this us? This has
2: to do with Sally Yates, the former acting U.S. Attorney General. I need a drum roll. <laughs> who is at a Bloomberg summit in New York right now. And she's made it very clear, um, really unequivocally for the first time. We already kind of knew this, but for the first time, unequivocally, she has no interest in a bid for elected office. So David Perdue can breathe a little bit easier. <laughs> now we don't know about Stacey Abrams or any other right, um,
4: contenders, right. but right. Well, I don't in any way mean to disparage your remarks here and your and your great, great revelation here, Greg, but <laughs> she has never contended she was involved. Well, yeah. And uh, that, that, every time I've talked to her in the last six, eight times, she says, no, I don't want to run for yeah. anything, so I don't mean to disparage right. your no, no, brand no, no. news. No, 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 no. Look, people, that, ain't, that ain't really news. Since <laughs> Since
1: <laughs> Trump, <laughs> since President Trump, Got rid of her as acting attorney general. Obviously, the question in the air has been, wouldn't she make a remarkable Democratic candidate for something? And the people who have dealt with her over the years know that running for elective office just is not in uh, her DNA. This is not what she really wants to be all about. But, Public service is but, what really matters to her. Teresa Tomlinson is probably well, pretty happy right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: And, and what she said today, at the, this is her quote, I just have to confess running for office is just not anything I've ever felt yeah. drawn to. You know what feels like you or doesn't.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Anybody, yeah. anybody we got a comment on that before we take a break? All right. Let's do it. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. Uh, we will come back in just a minute. Um, we're following another story that is developing in Washington right now. Tamar Hallerman is standing outside the Democratic caucus, the closed door meeting where Democrats are electing their Uh, nominees essentially for leadership posts and of course that's where nancy pelosi is hoping to get the nod that she will be the democrat speaker when they have an election on the floor of the house in january for that spot so tomorrow's keeping us up to speed on that we'll talk about that and a lot more after this
5: you've counted on gpb throughout 2018 to bring you insights into important issues and events and you'll continue to rely on gpb in the new year Your support makes all the programs that matter to you possible. As you support the organizations that are important to you during this season of giving, please include GPB. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thanks and happy holidays.
1: Going clockwise around the studio table today here in Midtown Atlanta, Greg Bluestein, Loretta Lapore, Patricia Murphy and Buddy Darden here for our live conversation on Political Rewind. Um, so let's talk Pelosi uh, for a little bit. Uh, I want to pull out. I thought you had just such you wrote two pieces, Patricia, this past week or so about Pelosi. It seems like you've really had her on your mind.
3: I can't stop. I just can't stop.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd love, if I may, I'd love to read the lead to a piece, The headline of which this was in Roll Call, Nancy Pelosi's Leadership Lessons for Bossy Girls Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's Hard to Look Away. When Nancy Pelosi is whipping her caucus in a leadership race, it's like watching a lion drag down an antelope twice its size or a slow-motion shark attack. Even though you think you know how it ends, the sheer power on display keeps you watching. What a great lead.
3: Thank you. Talk about it. Well, (laughs) I have to say, you know, I have covered Nancy Pelosi for a very long time, and um, really it's hard not to just admire her process and admire just the incredible power that she has ripped away from men in Capitol Hill, to be frank, and kept it for herself. Um, and she's uh, she's a very uh, charming person in real life. She's kind of a very friendly grandma uh, in a lot of instances. Um, but then she also is, uh, I think, uses that charm to really get her way in a town that doesn't let you have your way unless you make it happen. And so she's really... there was a time after uh, the Democrats lost the House in 2010 when it was assumed, oh, Pelosi's out of here. You know, how could anyone stay? How would it, how would even anyone even not be too embarrassed to ask for the job again? It's humiliating. And she was back at work the next day, rounding up her votes, telling people, you know, she does it through a combination of giving them what they want and making sure they know that they'll never get what they want uh, if they don't come around. And so she's uh, an impressive leader uh, to watch and Action. And another, that's why I wrote about her.
1: Another line in your story that and we'll open this up so everybody can weigh in on this. No matter how the vote ends in the Democratic caucus Wednesday, we will never have seen a woman in politics or maybe anywhere on the American stage so publicly, so publicly and so relentlessly go about getting what she wants. In a country with an entire cottage industry encouraging supposedly unconfident women to stand up for themselves, Pelosi's second quest for the speaker's gavel offers real-time lessons in leadership from a woman who has been at the top uh, and and wants to go there again at 78 years old. So, remarkable. You're not
4: going to hear many people say this, but I love Nancy Pelosi.
1: (laughs) She and I were in
4: Congress together. I remember when she got there, we sat next to each other on the ethics committee, and contrary to the image that Republicans have tried to put out for her, she is a truly nice person. She's a hard worker. She pays great attention to detail. And regardless of who the speaker was or is, that person is going to be demonized. Tip O'Neill was a great speaker. He got a hard time. Uh, Jim Drake came along. Tom Foley. But whoever the speaker is, that's just part of it. But I'm going to submit to you that it doesn't change one vote in the general election on who people vote for uh, for Congress based on who the speaker is going to be. you have an update for us? Yeah,
2: Tamar just texted saying Pelosi is declaring victory right now, and John Lewis um, is standing by her after giving her, I think, the final nominating speech. Wow. So it is not not that it's a surprise, but it is a done deal. I
1: want to I want to keep talking about Pelosi and the the opposition that was out there for at least a time being within the Democratic caucus. But uh, we should point out that one of the things we're all particularly interested in that tomorrow is waiting to find out is where our new Democratic member of Congress, Lucy McBath, stands on Pelosi.
2: Remember, this was an issue that really dogged John Ossoff when he ran last year. He was. Every turn, he was not only linked to Nancy Pelosi, but but asked whether or not he was going to support her candidacy and never really had an effective answer. I always said, I'll I'll cross that bridge when I come to it over and over again. Well, at some point, you know, you've come to the bridge. <laughs> you got to answer it. Uh, well, uh, Lucy McBath kind of took a similar. She said, this is this is not an issue I want to I'm prepared to talk about yet. Um, and managed to sort of avoid that question until now. I mean, she still hasn't said publicly whether or not she supported Nancy Pelosi yet. And Tamar is waiting for her outside the, uh, the House chamber room um, to try to get her on the record on wh- where she stood.
1: So, Loretta, it's interesting because the, um, the the younger, the newer member, we have this group of 16 particularly who have all signed on, off saying we don't want Nancy Pelosi, we need new leadership in the House for various reasons. Uh, basically, I think all men, there may be one woman who signed there that. Couple, there are a couple, couple of women. women. But uh-huh. Yeah, there are okay. a few. But, um, but that raises this really interesting question that Democrats have to address, I think. And that is, and, and Perry Bacon wrote about this in 538 this week, it— Do you need a leader? Does the speaker have to be someone who knows inside baseball the way that Pelosi obviously does? She can go head to head with Mitch McConnell. She gets how to play that game. But she's been demonized across the country. And the question is, is she a strong symbol for the Democrats as they approach 2020 of the kind of – uh, uh, agenda, uh, uh, the kind of atmosphere they want to create around the election. And that's part of this calculation that's kind of interesting.
0: Well, it is. So so when we look at the last election cycle, as Greg referenced, with the ossoff handle race... Nancy Pelosi was much more of a lightning rod than this cycle. She took a step back in this cycle. She obviously wasn't the speaker, so she wasn't, a, you know, but she was still the majority leader. But you didn't see her out on the stump. She was, however, or, you know, orchestrating the messaging, um, you know, in particular with what Republicans, the reason primarily Republicans were able to hold her up as, as sort of this lightning rod in the last cycle, not this 2018, but 2016, was the Affordable Care Act. You know, they made hay of the fact that she stood up and said, we passed this bill. I haven't read it yet. Right. And that became a, a rallying cry for Republicans. Um, and so in this cycle, she took a step back, but nevertheless was effective in defining, again, the health care issue. Right. So she was the one that got all the Democrats on the on the um, existing condi- conditions message. And that worked. So that's that's the campaign side. On the governing side, so the, the legislative side, we see a number of legislators, new Congress members, particularly those moderate co- members that are Democrats, that have won in suburban districts, are upset conservative Republicans and conservative, you know, outside of Richmond, uh, Mark Sanford's old district in South Carolina, even Lucy McBath to some extent. These are the folks who said, no way, we're not voting for Nancy Pelosi um, to help get elected. It was part of their election mantra. Lucy didn't, because it, in this cycle, Karen certainly didn't bring that to the fore as much, and you didn't have the House pack running ads, you know, day in and day out, um, vilifying Nancy Pelosi. Uh, so if Lucy wasn't forced the way that John Ossoff was to come forward and, and issue a statement. So I do think, though, in this legislature, in particular, you have a Democratic Party that, like the Republicans in the majority currently, are divided. You have a very progressive wing. Now you have these suburban moderates, um, and she's, somebody is going to have to bring them together. That has always been the challenge for the leader in the House, John Boehner, then Speaker Ryan, um, and, and bringing together the more moderate elements of the Republican Party and the Freedom Caucus. Now that's, and, and she is probably the most likely person and the only person really right now stepping up to take that on. Um, and so she is going to have, it is going to have to be somebody in their leadership as speaker who can bring together the majority, but also forge across party lines. And and as an observer, I think that Nancy Pelosi was far more effective during the George Bush administration than she was during the Obama administration. Right because she was able to bring her caucus in a line with the Republicans to help George Bush pass legislation. When she was <coughs> under when she when the Affordable Care Act passed, Democrats controlled everything. They had the House, they had the Senate, they had the White House. That wasn't, you know, I mean, yes, she pushed it over the over the finish line, which needed to because the White House wasn't capable of doing it. She pushed it over the finish line, but she orchestrated a whole lot more during the Bush administration. Patricia, you're
1: nodding when you hear uh, Loretta say this.
0: Well, so I think people forget
3: that the Republicans did not have the votes to pass the bank bailout for George Bush. Nancy Pelosi and a majority of Democrats voted for that because the Bush White House came to her At eight o'clock the night before, and said, We, the economy will literally explode in the morning if we don't get the votes. And the Republicans could not deliver the votes, even though they had, even though they should have been able to. She delivered the votes for the bank bailout, which she doesn't brag about very much. She delivered the votes a lot of times for Iraq funding, which was something she didn't want to do, but did because she is also extremely pragmatic. And although people love to call her a San Francisco liberal, (laughs) were she not from a very safe district, she wouldn't have the leeway that she does to deliver on a number of more moderate um, bills. And when she got her majority um, out of the 2006 elections, it was a huge number of blue dogs that gave her that majority. Her staff is very well aware that two-thirds of these... New incoming members who are are from swing districts—they were her majority makers. So she is extremely pragmatic. She will, if you watch when this this vote goes to the floor, she will let those individual members who are freshmen vote against her and brag about it, and she will not care because she wants the power. She wants. To have that caucus under control, and the Democrats are going to need somebody to go up against President Trump, who is an experienced negotiator and has the confidence to deal with him. And I think it's a it's sort of a unicorn that they're looking for, and she's the only unicorn in town.
2: i was curious, buddy. What, you've been on the re- the receiving end of this type of arm twisting from House leaders. What's it, what's it like to feel that pressure?
4: Not really. I haven't really been in. Uh that under that much pressure any time. What you do is you have to make a decision based on two factors, and it's not that hard. One is uh, what is the tenor of the thought in your district, and, and two, uh, what's best for the country and what's, what's best uh, for your for your party and, and to move its agenda. So it's not as—take my word for it. Uh, serving in Congress— Is not rocket science. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and what what you do is you have to balance. You have to balance uh, where your people are and balance uh, the overall good that is doing the country. And in in the end, uh, I would hope that you would uh, vote for what's best best for the
1: country. Buddy Darden, it took us until November 28th, just a month or so before the end of 2018 to find the single best line delivered on Political Rewind this year. <laughs> Serving in Congress is not like rocket science. You know, one of the most interesting things, though, in, in, uh, uh, in alignment with what Greg's asking, uh, uh, Buddy, I think the meeting that we heard reported out between Marcia Fudge the very well thought of uh, Democratic African-American Democrat from Ohio who was uh, being considered, who some people wanted to get get involved in a, in a fight with Pelosi for the speakership. Uh, Pelosi and Fudge, uh, we are told, sat down. And among other things, Pelosi described her calendar to Representative Fudge and essentially said, and some of you can maybe fill in some of the details of this, essentially said, Every day we are not in session. As Speaker, you will be out on the road. You will be raising money every day that you're not, we're not in session. You will be traveling the country. She raised 140-some million dollars, I think, in this last cycle. Um, You will spend no time at home. She really laid out, and you can talk about leadership in grand terms, but she laid it out, Patricia, in the nitty-gritty detail.
3: And, she knows and Fudge
1: that, came away and
3: said, no thanks. She also knows that Marsha Fudge is very close with her family yeah. and was not going to see them. So she kind of goes to the heart of the matter. Uh, when she was trying to get uh, the health care bill passed, it, they actually did not have the votes to, to have that big sprawling bill that they passed. They The White House had wanted to narrow it down, and she said, no, we're going to do it big, we're going to do it bold, this is our only chance. Um, and she was having a hard time getting the Democratic votes. Joe Donnelly, a uh, Wrote about this uh, is a uh, is from Indiana, practicing Catholic, went to Notre Dame. Uh, she was not getting anywhere with Joe Donnelly, and so the phone rings. It's like ringy ringy ring. Um, Hi, Joe. It's the president of Notre Dame, <laughs> <laughs> a, 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 a priest who was the former president of Notre Dame when he was. When he was a student at Notre Dame, he said, hi, he said, I heard you might not vote against the health care bill because Pelosi had said who was in, who was the president of Notre Dame when Joe Donnelly was there, wow. called him up, said, I need you to call Joe Donnelly. And so she kind of will get you from every angle um, to, to kind of push that caucus along. And she does it for every single vote. All
1: right, So let's uh, we're going to have to take a break in a second, but, but let's go back to McBath for a minute, Loretta brand new, freshman mm-hmm. Democrat. Uh, she's fortunate that she's now part of the majority. She's not a minority backbencher, which is really a miserable position to be in when you're a first-term member of Congress. But we don't know much about Macbeth, really. She's been very quiet. She doesn't, uh, so far, has not held a news conference. She, uh, she seems to want to keep her own counsel for the time being, get herself organized. Fine. But we know nothing about, you talked before about the factions we're going to see in the Democratic Party. And there is some concern you could have a Democratic version of the Freedom Caucus that presumably Pelosi, who will win on the floor, we imagine, is going to have to wrangle. We don't know where Lucy Macbeth is going to fit into that equation at all, do we?
0: Well, we don't because, you know, she has not demonstrated either through her career or her, uh, we do know, you know, where she has been in terms of her um, her advocacy on, on gun rights issues. But other than that, you know, she had very limited um, exposure through debates. With Does
4: anybody besides me know Lucy McBeth? Well, I know her, and... Uh, And she's a bright, and intelligent person. She's just going to have to stumble along and make a few mistakes in the beginning. But there is no future in her trying to separate herself from the Democrats or whoever the speaker happens to be, because uh, that's your group. And uh, you're not going to get any quarter from anybody of your constituents by saying, hey, I didn't vote for Nancy Pelosi because those people who would make the decision based on that are not for you anyway.
0: Yeah, I w- I'm not so cons- I wasn't really speaking so much to the Nancy Pelosi issue because I think at the end of the day, she either has someone to vote for or she doesn't. There's right. only one option. Right. And I don't think that any candidate is well served to not support that one leadership position that doesn't serve anybody well the broader issues you know she spoke some about health care um, on the campaign trail uh, but she does have a diverse district and it's a, div- a district that is changing and so um, she is going to have to be I think as Buddy said very judicious and when she does speak out and she's going to have she's got she's got you know for lack of a better term she's got some training wheels on and um, she's going to have to feel firm um, until those get removed and I suspect she's going to I hope that, you know, folks will help her build a strong team that can help her navigate Congress.
2: And look, she gets it too. This is going to be the most targeted Democratic House seat. That's my point. <laughs> in, yeah, I mean she's going to have to watch
1: her step every second. Just like there. Rob Woodall,
2: next door is going to be the most most targeted Republican seat. One of the most targeted Republican seats in the South. And there's if Karen Handel doesn't run for re-election and who knows, we haven't heard from her yet, there are already a swirl of Republicans who are lining up to challenge Lucy McMath because they see that seat as flippable with President Trump and a lot more tension, a lot more a lot higher turnout and David Perdue on the ballot as well in 2 years All right.
4: and she had a tough primary too you remember that was a runoff there that were four people and then oh. there were that were two and uh, and she came in as a pretty tough primary and barely won the primary
1: this is why i think the uh, uh the notion of being a member of the US House while it has certain uh, uh, privileges and you get an opportunity to help shape the course of the country, I don't think running every two years for reelection, <laughs> living in Washington four days a week on your office sofa and coming home on weekends, it, it sounds like a high price to pay for hoping to have an impact on the country, Patricia.
5: Well,
3: that's why you're here hosting a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think the Senate seems like a smarter (laughs) bet. Let's take another break, and we'll be back in a moment.
5: I'm Ira Flato. When did you first get captivated by science? Astronaut Leland Melvin says his interest was sparked literally when his mother gave him a chemistry set. You know, I created this explosion. I burned her carpet. She ran in the room, and, you know, I got a spanking. But my brain was activated to science. Activate your brain to science on Science Friday from WNYC Studios
1: special two-hour version of Science Friday starts today at 2
5: on GPB. Think about all the time you've spent with GPB during 2018 and what these moments mean to you. As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, I hope you'll include GPB. Before the year comes to a close, do your part to keep GPB strong in the year ahead. Go to GPB.org and click Donate to make your tax-deductible year-end gift or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thank you for your support and happy holidays.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, We talked a little earlier about Stacey Abrams in terms of the federal lawsuit that's been filed. Also mentioned briefly what kind of political future she may or may not have. But I think, Greg, one of the things that's interesting that tells us something about her sudden emergence as a figure, a, na- a figure of national importance to the Democrats, and perhaps to some extent to her appetite for playing a role on mm-hmm. a larger stage, she avoided that for the most part during the campaign.
2: She did. She ra- rarely waded into federal issues or out-of-state issues um, at all doing her run for governor because she was running for governor. She running, she kept the focus largely on state issues and rarely even mentioned Donald Trump's name unless asked about it. Well, now that that campaign is over and she's focusing now more on voting rights, um, her and Andrew Gillum, the, the, who, the runner-up for the gubernatorial bid in Florida, both spoke out against Thomas Farr, who's Trump's pick for a North Carolina um, federal judgeship, and that is over what she calls Farr's record of hostility and disregard for fundamental civil rights on voting issues.
1: farr has been an, a, a controversial nominee from the day that Trump uh, submitted his name. Although he gets a very positive rating from the American Bar Association, on the other hand, the uh, but he's chuckling because I guess we understand he doesn't think much of that endorsement. Thanks for whoever has but... a gun. <laughs> <laughs> But, but uh, he's been accused of not being supportive of civil rights. He was, in fact, one of the attorneys who fought for North Carolina laws that restrict—you know, the redistricting laws that have marginalized African-American voters. He worked at one point for uh, Strom Thurmond—
2: he he helped defend the state's strict voter ID law, yeah, yeah. And he was also behind, yeah, he as you mentioned, he and his law firm were hired to defend the congressional districts that, uh, in two thousand and sixteen were ruled racially gerrymandered
1: yeah, yeah. So he's very controversial. but the the thing, and today, by the way, we are expecting, that we're going to we may hear a vote on the on the floor today do we think Patricia
3: Uh there was a cloture a vote cloture scheduled vote. for today and I think underway a little bit earlier
1: All right so mm-hmm. and this is going to be a strict this is going to be a vote a, a completely along party lines and we'll we'll see the republicans are hoping to be able to hold say Susan Collins Lisa Murkowski uh, in line Jeff Flake may not vote because he's promised he won't vote for any nominee that Trump puts forward until the Senate is willing to pass his, you know, the protections for Robert Mueller, the special counsel. All that said, the point of this is that suddenly, buddy, this puts Stacey Abrams in a place where she sees herself as someone who might have an influence on national uh, policy. That's fascinating to see that evolution.
4: It is somewhat of a surprise to me that she's out there doing that because she could be so much more valuable to. Georgia by supporting John Barrow and helping out Lindy Miller and bringing out the Democratic vote, because in the end, as this is proven to us, it's that the ballot box is where the action is, and that's what ends up counting. Now, this particular judge, whether he is confirmed or not, uh, it won't really change that much in in, uh, our country. And I think her Better, better efforts ought to be down here in Georgia. But that is one way to raise your profile, and that's what she wants to do then. I understand this is a great way in which to get national media attention. Patricia?
3: Well, you know, I think that uh, national interest in a candidate is uh, extremely limited. And so uh, in order to if you do have uh, future political ambitions these days, especially as a Democrat, building your national uh, profile and uh, building your relationship with national donors is really essential. And so uh, this to me speaks to the fact that she certainly does have uh, future ambitions.
0: I would agree with that. And I would say she's not the only one. Uh, Andrew Gillum signed on to this also. Yep. And um, and so if you look at if you look in the southeast in particular and you look at some of the candidates that lost this cycle, they're relatively young. Beto O'Rourke you know, challenged Ted Cruz, Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum. They're all probably going to run again for something. Um, and so they are trying to remain relevant and uh, in the broader uh Con- political context. And Stacey Abrams was not shy at all about taking her governor's race nationally. Um, so she has a comfort level of operating, particularly in the media at a national level. Um, so for me, this doesn't seem anything you know antithetical to how she's kind of operated over the last year. Um, but I do think that the Democrats, in particular, the younger Democrats and in the Southeast are playing a long game here. Um, and and Republicans tend to be a little bit looking more short term um, because the big the, the game for Republicans is obviously to get the president reelected in 2020.
2: And Look, I mean, in Florida, Democrats came within one percent of winning the governor's race in Georgia one and a half or so percent of uh, 16, 17,000 votes of a runoff. Um, so So I guess this, the thought is why change the strategy? And for Stacey Abrams, um, she has either a 2020 Senate run against David Perdue to consider, or a rematch against Brian Kemp, or sit out an election cycle or two and do something further down the road. But in the meantime, she has been aggressively using that voter list and I, I you know, uh, that that fundraising list to raise money for Fair Fight Georgia and keep it in in the news.
1: All right, uh, it'll be fun to watch. 2020 is already here, isn't it, Patricia? I mean, why are we <laughs> waiting? Let's start digging into who's running and what we think of each candidate.
3: It's just like it's, it's just like a Christmas <laughs> list. It's never. (laughs) Never too soon to talk about it.
1: (laughs) Uh, A couple other quick notes before we leave you today. Uh, Georgia Congressman Drew Ferguson uh, got a uh, bigger assignment in uh, the next Congress. He's been elected deputy whip by the Republican conference. What does a deputy whip actually do? He counts votes, right, Loretta? He
0: helps helps whip up those votes, that's for sure.
1: All right. So what does that mean? I mean, does this put Ferguson in—it is a a terrific leadership position— how much does that actually raise the profile of a member of the House like that? Uh,
3: you know, uh, quite a bit internally inside the caucus. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into those deputy whip positions. Nobody from Georgia would know or care, but uh, for the leadership team on the Republican side, these are the guys. These are the, basically their lieutenants yeah. uh, to somebody like Steve Scalise. So he's making uh, friends in high places, and it certainly speaks to his own ambition as well.
4: However, as a general proposition, this is true for Republicans and Democrats and House members and even senators sometimes, the more prominent you become within your own caucus and within your own party, really, the more uh, you lose back home. Because people don't really give a tinker's damn about uh, whether you're chief deputy whip or assistant to the majority leader's uh, yeah, uh, majority dog later, catcher. You know, a dog catcher, and those things really, really don't help you at home at all. And it's, yeah, we've house, certainly seen plenty of races elect-
1: run against candidates who are in leadership positions, yeah. and the opponent says, you know, all he or she cares yeah. about is uh, being in that prominent and Eric place. Eric Cantor is a great example. Eric Cantor is the perfect example. there the there is
3: that great ad against Tom
0: Foley that said, "We don't need a speaker, we need a listener," uh, no. and he lost his race. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the dangers was part of the reason Eric. Cantor lost his race to dave bratt who was more conservative than Mm -hmm. even eric Cantor was was the fact that he was never at home he was always campaigning (laughs) for other other members and you got to go
4: along with the program you got to vote for the company line if if you're a member of the company here's here's the
1: problem we're trying to give Drew Ferguson just a little shout out. <laughs> <No>. Congratulations, <laughs> yes. Drew. Yes. And it's all turned against it is. him. Drew, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> I like, I like, what are like the Tinkers Dam? I need yeah. to know yeah. what the Tinkers Dam Real Quickly. Damn. I've never known what that phrase refers to. And after the show you'll tell us, buddy. It means very little. Right. Yeah. We're running out of time. Real quick. Um, Uh, The Mississippi Senate race went pretty much the way people expected it would. Mike Espy put up a really strong uh, fight against uh, Hyde-Smith. But, of course, in the long run, Mississippi voters are Republican voters. He didn't pull enough of the African-American vote, which is particularly interesting and meaningful. Certainly, he didn't get the white votes he needed, but he didn't even get the African-American votes he had to count
2: on. No, he didn't. And that's a state with such a small, white, liberal population. There are no, there are no vast suburbs like in Atlanta that, that, that Democrats can target. Um, but it's really going to set up an interesting gubernatorial contest next year um, between a, a statewide Democratic officer, the A.G. Jim Hood, who's... who's going to run for governor, um, who does think he can get more of that conservative white vote.
1: You
4: say he didn't get the African-American vote. He got the African-American votes that came out. He That's just, my he point. Just, he couldn't just, turn, out just, out. He he didn't didn't turn out. didn't
1: turn out enough people to uh, help him over the top. Um, by the way, um, my boss, uh, Taya Ryan, the CEO, the president of GPB, was on a flight to Washington this morning. She sent me a little note. She said, Cindy Hyde-Smith was on my flight. mm mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote her back. I said, sitting in coach or in first class? She said, coach. I said, good. She's <laughs> As a taxpayer, I'm glad she was sitting in coach. I don't know if uh, Taya got a chance to interview guess that her. that
2: flight from Jackson Connect through Atlanta, maybe. If, yes. I'm sure it <laughs> no does. No direct flights. I'm they sure definitely. it
1: does. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, Greg Blustein, uh, loved having you here. Of course, Loretta, we're glad you're with us. Patricia and Buddy Darden again. Congratulations. On November 28th for coming up with the single best line of the entire (laughs) year of Political Rewind. Thank you for being with us as well. Thank Um, you. We're taking the day off, of course, on Thursday tomorrow, but we're back with you for Friday's show at 2 o'clock. Look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, have a great evening tonight and a good day tomorrow.